Genesis 32, verses 1 to 21. Jacob also went on his way, and the angels of God met him. When Jacob saw them, he said, This is the camp of God. So he named that place Mahanaim. Jacob sent messengers ahead of him to his brother Esau in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. He instructed them, This is what you are to say to my lord Esau. Your servant Jacob says, I have been staying with Laban and have remained there till now. I have cattle and donkeys, sheep and goats, male and female servants. Now I am sending this message to my lord that I may find favor in your eyes. When the messengers returned to Jacob, they said, We went to your brother Esau, and now he is coming to meet you. And four hundred men are coming with him. In great fear and distress, Jacob divided the people who were with him into two groups, and the flocks and herds and camels as well. He thought, If Esau comes and attacks one group, the group that is left may escape. Then Jacob prayed, O God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, Lord, you who said to me, go back to your country and your relatives and I will make you prosper. I am unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness you have shown your servant. I had only my staff when I crossed this Jordan, but now I have become two camps. Save me, I pray, from the hand of my brother Esau, for I am afraid he will come and attack me, and also the mothers with their children. But you have said, I will surely make you prosper, and will make your descendants like the sand of the sea, which cannot be counted." He spent the night there, and from what he had with him, he selected a gift for his brother Esau, 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 female camels with their young, 40 cows and 10 bulls, and 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. He put them in the care of his servants, each herd by itself, And said to his servants, Go ahead of me and keep some space between the herds. He instructed the one in the lead, When brother Esau meets you and asks, Who do you belong to and where are you going and who owns all these animals in front of you? Then you are to say, They belong to your servant Jacob. They are a present to my lord Esau and he is coming behind us. He also instructed the second, the third, and all the others who followed the herds. You are to say the same thing to Esau when you meet him. And be sure to say, your servant Jacob is coming behind us. For he thought, I will pacify him with these gifts I am sending on ahead. Later, when I see him, perhaps he will receive me. So Jacob's gifts went on ahead of him. But he himself spent the night in the camp. This is the word of the Lord. Hey, 
Yeah, thank you, Karen. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your faithfulness to your people. We, we thank you that you uh, are a God who stays with us, who has promised good things to us in Jesus. Uh, you're with us in the valleys. You're with us in times of fear and distress. Uh, when, when things seem stacked up against us, Lord, we have a, a someone, we have you, a, a loving and all-powerful God that we can come to and we can hold to. Would you help us to do that? Would you, would you help us to take hold of the promises that you have given to us, which are absolutely rock-solid? In Jesus' name, amen. So we're uh, in a series here on the, the life of Jacob. And we're, we're coming here to a transition point. Uh, Jacob has been in self-imposed exile for the past 20 years, with good reason. Uh, his, his brother Esau was not too happy with him. And so he's, now, he's been away for 20 years, and now he's coming back home. He's setting his, his eyes and his thoughts to come back home. And as is often the case when we come to these you know, transitions, these, these junctures in our life, uh, you're very aware of, perhaps very preoccupied with one set of problems that you are leaving behind. Right? These things that you're finally putting in the rearview mirror, you're escaping these, uh, and then as you transition, you're met with a brand new set of problems um, that sometimes are even worse than the ones you just left behind. Um, you know, and those of you who are, are wondering as a, a faithful Reformed pastor, when am I going to mention Lord of the Rings? Here's, here's one opportunity. Um, it probably won't be the last. It's my favorite book, uh, series, whatever. Um, I'm aware of how unoriginal that is. I'm also okay with that. Um, but there's, there's a chapter uh, in The Hobbit. It's actually the prequel to Lord of the Rings. And uh, the, the protagonist, Bilbo, um, he, he and his company, his group with him, they uh, have been captured by a, a number of goblins, and they're taken into this, uh, the heart of this mountain, their, their sort of goblin empire. Right? And it doesn't look good. It's, it's a pretty bad situation. It does not look like they're going to make it out alive. Uh, the, the Gandalf um, is the wizard. He, he orchestrates this incredible uh, escape, miraculous escape, uh, where, where they're able to flee out, get away from all of the goblins. They get down this, um, out the side of this mountain, and they, they make it into this clearing, this sort of forest clearing in, in some trees. But scarcely have they they've gotten there. Right? They, they barely have time to catch their breath, and they hear wolves. Uh, and they are subsequently surrounded by a pack of wolves, uh, and they end up trying to climb into these trees to escape the wolves. Turns out the wolves had arranged to meet with the goblins they just had escaped, and so they're, they're effectively completely surrounded, uh, and then the, the goblins start setting fire to the trees that they've climbed up in. Uh, and then there they happen to be, uh, a spoiler if it, if it is, but they're, they're rescued uh, at the last minute from the, the sky by these eagles. Um, but it's, it's this kind of experience, right, where um, this chapter is called Out of the Frying Pan into the Fire, right? And that's, 
uh, that's, that's what's happening, right? We all have these sorts of things. You, you get out of, you leave behind one set of problems that's just consuming you, or it's just dominating your mind. It feels like it's crushing you, and you leave that, and then you find yourself in something that's actually worse, uh, that, that makes the last set of problems you, you left just look like, look like nothing. And that's Jacob's experience right here in, in this passage. Right? He's, just, he's left behind this, this grueling experience of the past 20 years working for this boss, Laban, who's just this mean, greedy, conniving, corrupt guy. Uh, and and he, he leaves all that behind. But you know, I'll tell you, uh, no matter how bad your work situation is, uh, starts to look pretty good when you leave that to go into a situation where there's a high likelihood you're going to be killed. <laughs> starts to be, maybe that wasn't so bad. Uh, so that's where Jacob finds himself. And the, the main point for us is that when you are afraid, hold God to his promises. When you're afraid, hold God to his promises. And we're going to see how Jacob does this here and, and how we can learn from what he does. So, I mean, first we're going to look at this new set of problems that Jacob uh, is about to enter into. We're going to look at how Jacob holds God to his promises. Uh, and then lastly, I want to spend a little time just thinking about how costly forgiveness uh, is. So, you know, first of all, in order to apply this, We've got to get a little bit inside Jacob's experience or understand what he is going through, what, what he is experiencing uh, in this, um, really it's a few days. And, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting. The Bible actually builds up this drama for, for quite some time, builds up this, this expectation, anticipation of what is going to happen with this kind of fateful reunion that's been 20 years in the making right, between Jacob and, and Esau that, that he slighted, right? And he had to run away from. And, uh, and how, does this, how does this end up resolving? And, you know, as a side note, there's something here, I, I think that's just really wonderful about biblical narratives, right? And that's that they're very true to our life experiences, Right? And, and what I mean by that is you, you have actually a very lengthy amount of Scripture. It's, it's three very full chapters that are chronicling a, a relatively short amount of time in Jacob's life. Um, you know, but you, you think about your life and how you think back, how you reflect over your life, how you tell stories about your life. Um, it, it doesn't unfold like this evenly spaced out periodical. Right, like, like 2022, these three things happened, and 2020, these three things, and you know, boom, 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 it's, it's all you know, lined up. That's not actually how it works. You get these intense bursts of life, right? just really intense seasons where, where life just comes at you really hard, and a lot of it. Right? And, and these things are, you know, it's a few weeks, or um, a few hours, or, or even a few minutes. Right, but that, that very short time can have just massive, massive deciding impact in shaping the rest of your life, right? determining kind of the direction uh, that you, your life is going to go or unfold and, and will, will stay with you. And so that, that's what we see with Jacob. You, you, you see this 
relatively short time from him fleeing Laban, right, and, and he gets up and he picks all of his stuff up and he's running away, and Laban chases him down, tracks him down. They have their final confrontation. Jacob turns from that, and right away now he has to face up to Esau and their reunion and, and all of this showdown. All of that is maybe about two weeks in Jacob's life, but uh, there's a ton that is going on and a ton that God is doing. So we see, right, with Jacob is this new set of obstacles he's dealing with. He leaves Laban behind, and immediately his mind shifts to this next problem ahead of him. This, is, this problem is Esau. Uh, and to say that this has been uh, an estranged relationship, uh, we're putting it very mildly. Uh, Esau made it a very clear, very explicit. He had every intention of killing Jacob. Now that, that's why Jacob had to leave in the first place. Uh, and so now uh, they're, they're actually finally going to see each other again. So Jacob, to prepare for this, he sends these messengers out ahead of him to talk to Esau, tell him that he's coming. And, and the first go-round, they're not bringing any gifts. They, they bring this message <clears throat> that, that Jacob is coming, and essentially they're saying, uh, you know, Jacob is coming, and he's a very wealthy and self-sufficient guy, Esau, Right? In other words, the message is, as, as Jacob is coming home, right, this has become Esau's home turf. And Jacob coming back, Esau, look, this isn't going to be a burden for you. It's not going to be a drain <clears throat> on your resources. In fact, Jacob is probably going to bring you a lot of prosperity and, and wealth that you're going to benefit from as well. Right? It's like, imagine if you have uh, your least favorite tech company. Is about to come into town, right? About to uh, set up uh, a headquarters, right? What are they going to say? Oh, they're they're going to try to sweeten the deal with, hey, look, we're bringing all these jobs into town and all of this commerce and productivity, and here's all this money that we're giving for public improvements and, and amenities and those kinds of things. So that's the message that Jacob is trying to send. Uh, the messengers come back to Jacob and they say, uh, Esau got the message. Uh, he is coming to meet you. Oh, and, and by the way, he's bringing 400 men with him. Uh, so uh, then the, the Bible says, verse 7 is just one of these great uh, verses of, of stating the obvious. It says, Jacob was greatly distressed and afraid. Yeah, yeah, I would think so. Uh, Esau is not waiting for Jacob to arrive he doesn't say a word to give himself away, but he is now going to meet Jacob in the wilderness with 400 men. You've got to remember as well, it's like the Wild West out there. There's, there's no laws, there's, there's no rules, there's no governing bodies to, to keep the peace. The law is the person that has the power makes the laws. That's, that's how it works. And, uh, you know, this is, this is a tamer analogy by a good, di- a good bit, but imagine if you had uh, a family member that you've had some sort of falling out with, uh, and you reach out to them, you want to patch some things up, and so you, you send them an email and, and you want to get lunch with them. And you get an email back, and uh, they say, okay, uh, well, I will meet you at such and such a time, at the police station 
uh, and they have cc'd all these high-powered lawyers uh, and everybody in their family that's on their side. It's not a friendly response that you just got. And you got to also bear in mind there's another wrinkle here that makes this situation for Jacob even worse than the one he just left with Laban. Because with Laban, Jacob more or less had the moral high ground. He could more or less claim he wasn't maybe perfect, but on the whole, Jacob could evaluate what he was doing, and, and he was receiving evil and returning good. That's no longer the case here. That's not the situation as he's coming back home. Um, Jacob knows um, he, he has a lot to answer for. And this, I think, brings up an important question for Jacob, but one that's very relevant for us as well, and, and that's how do you reckon with your past? How do you reckon with past failings, you know, things that you haven't handled well? Uh, you know, how, how do you confront those things? How, how do you bring God into those things in your life? Because if you're honest, all of us can look back at our lives, right? think about things that we've done, uh, things that the decisions we've made, relationships that we have had that we have not been in the right. And and you've handled those things poorly. You've done things that are wrong. And if that particular issue resurfaces, if that thing comes back up, if that relation, that person comes back in, you're not going to be able to look at that and and stand on your good record. You're not going to be able to, you know, kind of kind of think, well, well, what a what a good job I did, you know, closing all of that out. So so what do we do with those things? No matter how distant something is in your past, it's, it's never buried. There's no guarantees those things won't come back up again, especially in a digital age. Right? And even if it doesn't, you, know, you, you still have to reckon with... You can't just say, well, I won't think about it. You, you still have to deal with feelings of guilt and shame in your life. Right? So I, I think we've got to do the same thing that Jacob does here as he's facing those realities in his past. And he holds God to his promises. He holds God to his promises. Uh, I want to look at from this prayer, particularly verse 9 and verse 12. Jacob says at the start of this prayer, he says, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac. Why does he start out like that? Why is he addressing God like that? I think what Jacob is doing is he's gesturing to God's promises, to God's faithfulness. Because Jacob knows his family line. He knows his family stories. He knows who these men were. They were not perfect men. They were flawed men. Men who made a lot of mistakes in their lives. And yet, God was faithful. God was committed because of God's promises. Because of God's commitment to them. And one of those promises was descendants. 
that there, there's going to be this line from, from Abraham and then from Isaac and, and now with Jacob that God is going to make into this nation that you can't number. And, and so Jacob is asking God to do what he's done time and time again. He said, God, make good on your promises for your name, for your word. Let's look forward in verse 9. He says, Jacob says, O Lord who said to me, Return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. So what's he doing here? Well, it's, it's pretty obvious, right? He's holding God to his promises. He says, look God, I'm here because of you. I'm trying to follow you. I'm trying to do what you told me to do. And I'm in some pretty hot water now because of that. You skip down to verse 12. He says, But you said, but you said, I will surely do you good. I will make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. So here's Jacob. Here's what he's doing. He's holding this explicit promise that God made to him. Right? And he's holding this up to this reality that Jacob's actually in. Right, where, where he is now having to split his camp into two parts so that each of these at least has a 50-50 chance of getting out alive. All right, and he's saying, uh, this doesn't seem to be matching up, uh, God, what, what you promised. Now, and there's a few things, I think, for us to note from, from this prayer. And one is Jacob's continued progress as he is spiritually maturing. Is Jacob, he hears this terrible news. He hears this very frightening news of what Esau is doing. Esau is coming after him. And he, he right away splits his camp, but then he stops. He, he stops in the middle of a very time-sensitive, very urgent crisis, and he prays. He goes to God in the middle of this. And and so Jacob, maybe you should have done this the first thing, but he's learning. He is learning. He's being formed in these habits of life to go to God and to go to God earlier and earlier. That God is his defense. God is the one who's going to guarantee his safety more than anything that Jacob can do here. And, And this is a lesson for us. That the sooner we go to God, going to God should be a first instinct. The sooner that we do that, the better. And the the next thing I want us to note, and really I think try to take in, try to digest a little bit, is that uh, Jacob knows what God has promised and what he hasn't. If we're going to respond to times of trouble and times of fear the way that God wants us to, which is by holding God to His promises, we've got to know what He's actually promised and what He hasn't. And I think this is easy for us to pass over because a lot of us, at least, know how this story ends. It's fine. It all, it all turns out okay. Nobody ends up dying. But Jacob truly doesn't know that. He really doesn't know that. And we can't just miss that. 
all Jacob knows is that he is here because he is following God's will, and so he can expect God to hold up his promises. That's what he knows. And, and as a side lesson here for us, I think we should also realize from this that just because you hit hard things in your life, or just because you start encountering obstacles, even severe obstacles, doesn't mean you're not in God's will. Doesn't mean that you're not doing what God wants you to do. As Jacob knows, without a shadow of a doubt, absolutely certain that he is following God's will, and he is in a situation now where his family is in danger of being killed. His whole family. Following God's will. So, Jacob knows. What does he know? Well, Jacob knows that God has promised him good, and he knows that God has promised to multiply his offspring. He, he knows those things. But, as is pretty much always the case with God's promises, he doesn't get the details. He doesn't get the details. So, just because Jacob knows that God is going to work together everything that Jacob goes through for his good, does not mean Jacob is not about to hit a catastrophe. A real big catastrophe. And just because Jacob knows his, his offspring are going to multiply, that doesn't mean, for example, that uh, all of his children except one couldn't die here. Right? He doesn't get a timeline on that. Right? And, and, and God then uses this one kid to turn into a, a, a whole nation hundreds of years later. He, there, there's so many specifics and particulars Jacob simply does not know. And that's the same for us. It's really the same for us when, when we deal with God and His promises. I, I think this can be really frustrating. I think this can be really challenging. Because you can be holding on absolutely steadfast to, to God's promises through Jesus that He's going to do you love, or do you good, and He's going to love you, and, and He's going to protect you. But, that doesn't give you any guarantee that things are going to turn out the way you want them to. Because God's ways aren't our ways. God tells us that. And God thinks about good and what's good for us a lot of times a different way than we do. But last thing I want to note here before we move on. And that's, I want to come back and answer the question I asked earlier, which is how can we deal with, how can we reckon with our past? How can we, we reckon with um, feelings of guilt and shame? Or, you know, how can you go forward into a situation, into a circumstance where you know you don't necessarily deserve the, be the best outcome? How do you do that? I think we can do either of those things for the same reason. It's because of our relationship with God in Jesus. If we understand that, it will give us this means to approach those things in our life. Because the relationship that you have with God, because of that relationship with Jesus, you can go to God and ask for, even demand, 
demand that God give you good things, and it doesn't have to do with whether you deserve it. It has to do that Jesus has promised these things as a gift because of his love. And that starts to change the posture that we have towards God, the posture we have towards our circumstances. Look back at the middle of Jacob's prayer. This is in verse 10. He's saying these things in his own words. He says, I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy of the least of all these deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness you have shown your servant. For with only my staff, I crossed this Jordan. And I've become two camps. And he goes right on to pray, Please deliver me from the hand of Esau, for I fear him. This is such a beautiful prayer. It's it's such a great prayer. We, We can learn so much here from what Jacob is doing. So pure, so straightforward, so much without pretense here. Jacob looks back at the past 20 years of his life, and he says to God, it's all gift. It's it's all grace. I, I didn't deserve any of these things. And then he surges right ahead, and he's honest with God about what he's feeling and what he wants. He says, please deliver me from Esau. I'm afraid. Jacob has learned something really important here that, that we need to try to learn as well. And, and that is Jacob has come to a point where he's able to look at his life and say, I don't have any of the blessings that I have in my life because I deserve those things. And so I don't have to start worrying now about whether I deserve what I'm about to ask for. I'm going to appeal to your faithfulness. I'm appealing to your grace, your promises. That's how we've got to learn to talk to God. The reason that we can come to God and the reason we can ask for things is never because of us right, and how well that we're doing. It's because of Jesus. The last thing I want to look at from this passage is Jacob's costly forgiveness. His costly forgiveness. So after Jacob prays here, he finishes praying to God and then he takes action. This is a theme that we've talked about before. It's not either or. It's not either you, know, you have faith or you take action. <laughs> it's, it's both. It's pretty much always both. And you you got to have faith and dependence on God first, but you also pretty much always have to take action. And, and so that's what Jacob does. We find the next seven verses are all of the actions, all of these detailed plans that he is laying out and, and to, to prepare to send to Esau and the extravagance of this gift that he is sending him with, with a whole lot of ceremony and a whole lot of deference. His servants keep coming in, in these sort of staggered out and they keep saying, you know, Esau, my Lord, and, and Jacob, your servant. And, and through all of this, Jacob is hoping, verse 20, He says, maybe, maybe I'll appease him. Perhaps, perhaps he'll accept me. And the key thing I want us to see from all of this is how costly our forgiveness is. 
how costly forgiveness is. Right? It, it, for, for us, of course, it costs a lot more. It's not a matter of money or property. It's Jesus' blood. It's Jesus' life that was given for us. And you know, I, I think that we understand, but we don't really understand how costly our forgiveness is. Uh, and, and the reason I say that is because uh, I think it would make a difference for all of us. I, I think that we, we in our lives would look different if we, got, if we understood that. You know, think about what would it look like, what would it mean if you really grasped how much it cost to forgive you? Right? How much God had to do, how, how much He had to do to mend your relationship. How much that cost God. Well, I, I think... Among other things, we would have a better idea of how sinful we are. And I, I don't think that's really the case. I, I know that's not the case for me, because if I understood more how sinful I really am, right, how much I am falling short in my relationship with God, my relationship with other people, I'd probably be a lot faster to ask forgiveness. I'd, I'd be a lot faster to admit wrong and repent because there's a lot clearly that's wrong in me. And the reason that I can hold God, the reason you can hold God to his promises, and the reason you can move toward reconciliation with other people is the same. It's because Jesus has paid that price. And that means two things for us. I'm just going to close with these, these two things I, I think that we can see from this passage. The first one is that, that you can be bold about holding God to His promises. The second is you can be bold about admitting your own faults and failures. Because the price has already been paid. I think one of the reasons why you know, repentance, confession, why these things come so hard for us is because we think that we're on the hook to pay the price if we've gotten it wrong, right? And so maybe if I can, I can pretend that there is no problem here, then I don't have to pay a price. And there's some truth to that. There is a price to be paid right, to your pride, right, to the image that you're trying to maintain. There's a price. But when we actually admit our own faults, our own shortcomings to God and to other people, we're actually taking hold of God's grace as what we're standing on, God's power. That's what He wants us to do. Now, I'm not saying you need to heap blame on yourself that isn't real, right, and just pile that on. That's not helping anybody. But one of the ways, one of the ways, at least, that you and I can take hold of God's promises is by believing that you receiving something good doesn't depend on whether you deserve that. It, it depends on what Jesus has done. It doesn't depend on you keeping up that appearance that you, you're really worth these good things. Are you, are you tracking with that? Because I'll tell you, I mean, it's just one last closing thought here. If, if you really want to point somebody to Christ, 
If if you really want to show how just how radical and transformationally good the good news of Christianity is, try asking somebody for forgiveness when that's appropriate. (laughs) Because you will blow that person away. We don't even have a category for that. But when you do that, when you do that, you show that what you are holding on to, your hope for good in this world, is, is based on holding God to His promises, holding God to His faithfulness, not your desert. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that we can be bold in holding you to your promises. Your promises to do us good. Your promises to love us. Your promises to take care of us. Your promises to make us more and more beautiful. Make us more and more glorious. You have promised these things to us not based on how well we're tracking with you. Or, or the, the good outweighing the bad in our lives. But you promise those to us on, on the basis of your commitment, on your name, on your faithfulness to us in Jesus. We pray that you would just be giving us more of a freedom, more of a confidence that, that comes uh, from not feeling that we have to earn those things to you and before other people, but to be able to take hold of more of your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.